and welcome to Literary Prospects, where we talk to authors and other literary professionals about books, publishing, and the writing life. I'm Kelly Vick, the host of the program, and it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, editor Alexandra Shelley. Alexandra is the editor of more than 50 published novels, including many bestsellers like Lilac Girls, Lost Roses, and The Help, which sold more than 11 million copies and was made into an Oscar-nominated film. With more than 30 years' experience, Alexandra has served as Deputy Editorial Director of Bridgeworks Publishing, where she was responsible for choosing and editing some of that house's commercial and critical successes, and as an independent editor with her editorial agency, Illuminated Manuscripts. In addition to her work as an editor, Alexandra's been teaching creative writing at Columbia, Yale, and the New School for many years. So, let's get started. Hey, Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a treat to have you on and to get a peek behind the scenes and learn a little bit more about how the books that we read and enjoy every day are really created. So let's uh, let's start at the beginning. How would you describe what you do as an editor? <laughs> that is a... <laughs> That is a very hard question to answer because um, in thinking about talking with you, I actually looked back on how many books I've worked on that have been published and it's about 55, 56. I, yeah, so a lot of books and I would say I, I would answer that question differently for each one. Um, so I can only tell you what the latest book I'm working on has entailed, for instance. Um, but I'm really lucky in that I work with authors pretty far upstream. So I don't work, I used to work at a small publishing house. That's kind of how I learned the business, but now I work on my own directly with the author. So I'm often working at a, a pretty early draft or sometimes even um, not even a complete book. So I get to have a lot of creative input, which, and, and I also am eternally grateful for authors who are actually trusting me with that. Um, and, you know, then I, usually I'll take a book through several drafts. So um, often the first one is more about um, broader aspects of the book, like the structure and the characterizations, um, little quirks um, of prose that could be revised. Um, I'm working right now with an author on dialogue. Um, she's a Southern author, so I just watched Steel Magnolias again because I was looking for some Southern dialogue involving women similar to her book, um, which is a little down homey, by the way, but I still really like the uh, way, the understatement among the women. Um, so yeah, and then it'll, it'll go all the way through um, uh, line editing often, which is um, putting every word on trial for its life, um, you know, wondering whether that comma needs to be exactly there. Um, so yeah, sometimes it takes a book that I worked on that's just just gonna come out soon um, was really fast. It took eight months, but that was the author working full time and she did three complete rewrites. Um, I kept putting her through the ringer with the ending of the book. I think we did about 10 versions of it. Um, and actually, she just sent me a picture last week. Um, she was with Martha Hall Kelly, who wrote uh, Lilac Girls, which I worked on for a long time, and that was a bestseller. And the two of them met at a conference, and they went out for stiff drinks, and they were comparing <laughs> notes about how 
um, how I kick their ass, basically, um, <laughs> how many times. But on the other hand, um, you know, Lilac Girls was on the bestseller list, so you know, over a million copies. The book that's about to come out um, sold at auction for a good price. So all that work was worth it, at least financially, and hopefully, you know, emotionally as well. And um, yeah, so so that was very fast. That eight months. Um, the help, for instance, was 10 years, not constant work, obviously, but it, the back and forth thing took 10 years, during which time the author had a child and was working and doing all these unnovelistic things. Um, but yeah, so in that time frame, many different aspects of the book um, go through a revision. How, how did you come to editing? What is your background? Uh, well, I, you know, I also write fiction. Um, I ended up finding it much easier to write in the margins of other people's fiction and help them tell their stories. It's more satisfying, more immediately. As you know, writing fiction often feels like you're writing into a void. Um, though I haven't given it up entirely. Um, I was an English major in college that actually didn't really help me as an editor. I studied English at Yale in the 80s um, when we were reading a lot of Chaucer and Spencer and Shakespeare and no one ever showed you the rough draft of Canterbury Tales. <laughs> it never occurred to me that any of those um, writings were revised in any way. They just came down from on high. Um, but then I was, I worked at a weekly newspaper called the East Hampton Star after college, and I started a fiction series in the Star, and the beauty of working on the South Fork of Long Island is that there are a lot of amazing writers who live out there, have houses out there. So um, I, I got these incredible stories from um, all kinds of people, including a classmate of mine, David Levitt, who is an amazing short story writer, and they were happy to publish in the Star, which um, was wonderful. And I think when I really started seeing myself as an editor was I got a story from an unknown, then unknown writer named A.M. Holmes over the transom for the fiction series. And I really liked it. Um, it, was, it was bizarre and brutal in her usual fashion, but very smart and funny. Um, and uh, the ending wasn't quite working. So I, I called her up and I said, I think you might need to do something a little bit with the ending. It's a little abrupt. And she said, okay, what should I do? And I was like, I don't know, you created this story. How would I know? Um, and, and we kind of worked on it together. And so I'm eternally grateful to her for um, putting that faith in me. And, um, you know, after that, I became extremely opinionated, um, as you know, since you're in my writing workshop. And um, uh, yeah, so I, I do think that studying literature helped, helped me to kind of see writing as maybe not malleable, but to understand sort of what the high bar is. So I don't really compare every book I work on to Chaucer, but I'm glad I had that grounding. Mm -hmm. um, although some books I work on seem to be written in Middle English, at least initially. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I came to it that way. And, and also as a journalist, I worked as a journalist for many years. Um, I think that helps, helps me as well with novels. Um, and I work on creative nonfiction as well. So I'm working right now with a memoirist who has a book coming out at Scout Press. Um, and, you know, I'm, she, she obviously knows her own life very well. 
So it takes an outside set of eyes to provide some refraction and to say, you know, you actually, it is your own life, but you kind of have to report it. I mean, I'm sending her back to, she's writing a book about army wives. Her husband's in the army. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have to go back to some of the people you're writing about and interview them about these specific things. Um, can't rely entirely on memory and on your own perceptions. Um, she has an amazing memory. So she's, she's been, been able to recreate a great deal. And then I'm sending her off to research things like, um, you know, what kinds of careers do spouses of people in the army tend to have? Um, uh, how often do they tend to move? Other things that relate to life, but which, as she lived it, but to put it in a broader context. So certainly for nonfiction, I think that's helpful. But I just got a big project from Simon and Schuster, um, which is a novel set in the mid 1800s among the Crow Indians about which I know nothing, which is actually kind of a virtue, I think, in a way, because I can I can represent the average reader and say, I don't understand this, but um, I'm doing a lot of research for that as well, just so I know what questions to ask. So yeah, I think journalism has helped me. That's a very long answer to a it's basic a question. <laughs> when, well, first, where where do you get most of your clients? How do they come to you? Well, it's changed over the years. I kind of left out that I worked at a publishing house, which I helped to found called Bridgeworks, um, which was uh, the the couple who founded it, Barbara and Warren Phillips, were incredibly gracious in letting me sort of um, bring books in and letting me choose what I wanted to work on. Uh, they, for certain parts of the year, they would turn the whole place over to me. So, um, you know, some of my first clients came through them, um, they were ultimately bought by a larger entity, uh, which realized that they weren't really making much money, which I could have told them. Uh, <laughs> but, but we had a lot of critical success. Like we published the first book by Tom Parada, which I brought in. Um, and so uh, once they shut down, I, you know, and continued to work with some of the clients from there. Um, actually, one of my I think my first independent client was the uh, at that time the head of the Pulitzer Committee, who had been um, a, an AP reporter. Then he was managing editor of the Times. He covered the Chinese Civil War, um, and he was writing a novel set in China. So he'd never written a novel before. So it was pretty intimidating first client. But what I learned is that you know fiction writing is not necessarily a transferable skill. From you can be extremely accomplished in other ways, but not necessarily. Um, know how to put together a novel so like his protagonist died halfway through and I said I don't think you can do that let's try try to keep him alive at least towards till almost the end Um, so yeah and now I get most of my clients through um, agents um, and and publishing houses will often send me work Um, I know one of your interests is what's going on with editing at the publishing houses these days and you know I think um, in the last, certainly I've been in the business for 35 years and in that time, there's been very few editors of publishing houses who have the time to really um, dive into a book and take it through many revisions. So what's happened is that the editing has kind of devolved from publishers to agents and then sometimes from agents to people like me who work independently. Um, So, the book that I just got from Simon and Schuster, one of their imprints. Um, this is one of their best-selling authors. Uh, you know, you'd think they would put a lot of time into her, but they just—it needs more of a renovation than they have time for. So, um, yeah. So, 
it's exciting to work on a book that I know will be published and uh, the author is really wonderful. Uh, but it's going to take a lot of work. You know, I just estimated this. Is, I've already worked on this book once, did kind of a major structural overhaul, and now it needs a line edit, you know, and it, it'll take three to four weeks. So if you're an editor of a publishing house and you're trying to acquire books at the same time, you're pitching your books to the sales force, you're um, shepherding a number of books through revisions, you're not going to have time for that. And I know you've mentioned that every project is is different, but is there um, any sort of formula to what happens when a client first comes to you? I mean, I guess obviously you have to read through what they've got and then what happens then? They get a report from you or how does it, can you sort of take us through what a project would look like? Well, I think if you talk to my clients, many of whom have I've introduced to one another and they've formed little support groups, um, they would have a different vision. But um, yeah, so I only I'm only able to take on, I don't know, maybe one out of 20 projects that comes my way. So first I will, you know, but I do I do respect anyone who has written a whole novel or even part of a novel or, you know, a, a history book that's trying to be popular or whatever some of the other books I work on. Um, so I read, you know, between 20 and 30 pages of anything that's sent to me to see if it's something I can help with, I think. Um, and then I will uh, actually give the author um, uh, just my preliminary thoughts with, you know, the caveat that I've just read it through quickly and give them a general sense of some things I think we might need to work on together. Um, if they don't go running in the other direction, then um, I will... I will, I usually suggest that they let me read about 50 pages and give feedback on that so that we can rejigger it as we're going along. And also just um, cost wise, I charge by the hour. So I don't want them to feel like they're getting into a black hole of cost. Mm -hmm. And also after 50 pages, I can tell how long it's going to take probably to read the whole book. So then we'll go over that. Um, I'll give them, I, so the book I'm working on this week, for instance, um, I think there are margin notes about every couple of sentences. Um, a lot of those are suggestions for expanding the scene, but also, and this is an author who's published two books before, but she's writing this one from five points of view and two of them are um, Latinx characters. Um, one is a child, um, one is in Guatemala. It's extremely complicated. So I'm trying to help her now just work on the voices. So in that case, I've, um, you know, I've, given a lot of feedback on where the voices don't sound quite right to me and also where she could make them diverge more and ways in which she can do that. So that's the first round. And then I'll give that back to her. And in this case, um, after about 50 pages, um, I'm going to suggest that she go back and work on the whole novel again with this, these things in mind, whatever resonates with her. Um, and then that I continue reading it from there. So that's one way that it works. Um, uh, sometimes authors, uh, often they'll come to me after a book has been shopped around somewhat mm -hmm. um, to different publishers. If they're authors with agents and they've had other books published, you know, they'll get a pretty thorough read at a publishing house. But if they're rejected for some reason, and then we kind of go back to the drawing board and often they'll have gotten feedback from the acquisitions editors or in the agent. And I'll try to work with that 
Um, and sometimes if somebody knows that the, the problems are more structural, they're down the line, then I'll read the whole book fairly quickly, give those broad notes. And then usually we'll go back and do a more sort of micro edit. So it's a, it's a long process. <laughs> I'm just always amazed every time I send an editorial report. And for instance, in the book that I just got back from Simon & Schuster, that editorial report that on two drafts was about 75 pages, single spaced. Wow. In addition to margin what notes. in the editorial report? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, good question. I mean, you know, that was a pretty extreme example, but I, you know, in that case, um, gosh, that book was really, uh, I, I ended up taking out about the last third of the book um, and restructuring it. And when I say I, I did this, then I sent, of course, give it to the author and she will use what she can from it. In this case, she used most everything. Um, but uh, you, I did a lot of research on the Crow language, for instance. Um, oh, your dog. Dog barking, yeah. <laughs> That's so nice. Um, and I like a homey effect. Honestly. I love I love that there's a dog there. I'd love I wish I'm I would like one right now too. Um yeah, so uh gosh, well, you know, I I have notes on every chapter. Um I had overall notes on characterization. Uh there was one character who was working beautifully. I was trying to figure out how to get some of those facets of that character to give them to some of the other characters. Um really tricky because the author is trying to write in the voice of, uh, this is a historical figure who was a Crow woman um, in the eight. So not only was she Crow, but she was, she married a white man. So she was speaking English, but she was speaking English having learned it as a second language with her first language being Crow. Um, and uh, Crow, the Crow language has these spectacular words that have tons of vowels and X's and stuff. And I wanted to get as much of that in there as possible. Um, and then also try to get in as much as possible of the perspective. Um, you know, this is very tricky and, and especially in a time when we're so much more aware of cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, um, of course, they're going to be Crow readers. In fact, this book has already gone through one sensitivity reader who is Crow and who um, runs a, a college and so knows a lot about the history of the language and the people. Um, but, you know, again, I'm functioning as kind of the first reader. So I just have to look at if this doesn't strike me as true or um, as authentic. So now let's look into it. I, I can't really give a solution, but I can help the author. I, like I ended up researching um, saddles used by women in the Crow tribe um, so that I could help what, you know, because they're on horseback a lot. So what does that feel like? What does saddle look uh, all the way down to like um, this uh, woman was 17 when she married. So, um, you know, I was trying to get a little bit of the um, feelings of a 17 year old, which I think are probably eternal mm -hmm. um, into the book. So I was trying to get in more physical sensations. And then and there's a lot of history in the book. So I, I did some research on the history. Um, Wallace Stegner wrote about it as well, this particular massacre that's at the center of the book um, and about horse, um, horse wrestling. Um, so I read about that. And yeah, so in that case, 
just, it kind of, it hit on every level. Um, then what came back, the author was trying to use accents um, in her voices. And unfortunately it came out sounding kind of Spanish, maybe Central mm -hmm. American, I'm not sure. <laughs> so then we had to kind of go back and work on that. Um, and then I also, um, you know, I love it when authors give me too much um, because it means they've been, they've just given all they can and the scenes are as taken as far as they can. Um, and I can then help them kind of scale back um, to kind of carve around what's working best so that that really stands in relief. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say on average, I take out, suggest taking out maybe a quarter of the material, which sounds oh. kind of brutal, but you know, a good author will have put in that much, um, particularly in dialogue. I'm almost always, uh, unlike myself, who's babbling on here, I find that um, dialogue looks more realistic, moves faster, is much tenser if it's kind of um, reduced to the bone. Um, although, you know, there may be characters who speak more loquaciously and then, and then you have them as a contrast. But I, so I do a, a lot of line editing. I'm inspired by David Mamet in particular, as you know. <laughs> I think that when you look at his plays on the page, um, you see what dialogue, lifelike dialogue looks like. It's really messy. Mm -hmm. So I am usually spend a lot of time mucking up the dialogue. And then trying to imagine myself as either a Crow Indian or a, a nine-year-old from Guatemala or, and I'm, you know, not very good at that, but I do a lot of research. So. Well, that brings me to, you know, as we've touched on, I feel very lucky to say that I'm a member of a fiction writing workshop that you lead. And one thing that we talk about a lot is how much of a collaborative process creating fiction really is. Um, but yet there still seems to be this great general myth among readers and even a lot of beginning writers, myself included, until I... I learned better that great fiction is created by, you know, the solitary writer who's working alone. And, you know, we're seeing obviously that is not what the real process is. Um, do you know why that sort of myth has, do you have any thoughts on why that kind of myth has endured and what the reality versus, you know, what the real reality of the situation is? Well, first I should say it's, um, I'm so lucky to have this writing workshop to lead because I get to choose amazing writers like you whose work I feel like reading. So I just get to choose <laughs> writers who I want to <laughs> want to read every Tuesday um, and who also are supportive of one another. I think very few um, books that I know of get written in isolation. So most authors I know will work, have a writing workshop. They'll have um, readers they trust, other writers often. Um, but in terms of the editorial process, um, I think that, you know, I think we, we don't even necessarily, when, especially when we're reading a novel, want to think about the writer. We want to just have a direct relationship with the characters, with the narrator in particular. Like, and if you um, know that not only are you reading the product of a writer, but also writing workshop and an editor and a copy editor and a um, even, even the person who's designed the cover or um, who's fact-checked the book or whatever, it's a team. And I, I think um, that can take away from the intimacy of reading. I think that's one reason why. Um, 
I was, I was reading President Obama's latest memoir, and he takes three pages to thank all the people who helped him with that book. So it really does take a village, and it also takes a very gracious writer to recognize that. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't think you want to see how that's made necessarily. You just want to um, experience the product. Um, uh, I also think that there's a wonderful myth about, you know, um, inspiration coming from on high, you know, Athena springing from the head of Zeus, fully formed. Um, and I think as writers, we, I think that the, the people who suffer the most from that myth are writers because, you know, often I'm working with authors who haven't necessarily had much editing on their earlier books, um, especially if they've, you know, been at a publishing house, but they haven't been like their top titles and they've been just kind of pushed through. Um, and there's like shocked by how much, you know, can go on. Um, oh, sorry, Kelly, just something popped up. Um, how, how much revision can go on, how long it can take and on how many different levels. Um, and I think that, you know, that's part of honing a book. I mean, Hemingway said that the only kind of writing is rewriting. Uh, and he should know, because he was edited quite a bit by Max Perkins and by Fitzgerald. Um, and I think if authors um, sort of knew that when they went into it, they would put a lot less pressure on themselves and maybe, um, and maybe be a little bit less shocked by the revision process. I will say that when people come out the other end, you know, eight months or a year or two years later, <laughs> they're usually um, pretty excited by how much the book has changed and um, by how much they were able to dig how much deeper they were able to dig that they, you know, they just didn't know they had that in them. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Why do you think that we don't want to know about everything that goes into the making of a book? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> well, as a writer. Yeah, I really, I don't know. I've thought about it. I, I mean, everybody sees the acknowledgement section, but I guess we just don't pay that much attention or we don't know as readers like what exactly all of those people in the acknowledgement section have done. And I think that your theory about being, wanting to be close to the characters in the book and not even really think about like an, one intermediary in between much less 10 or 15 or 20 or however many people are really gonna have their hands on this before it comes out into the world makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I think too, uh, you know, it's funny because in publishing, we, we think very much about which pub, you know, which of the major publishers is going to publish this book, um, which imprint, you know, what, I don't think a, a book buyer or a Kindle reader or whatever, even looks at who the publisher is, you know, you, you just, you just want, you want to have the most unmediated relationship with the story that you can. Although I will say that the last four or five historical novels I've worked on, which were told from the point of view of women, have had, uh, here, I'll pull one down, had these covers involving the backs of women. <laughs> Here's another one. That's true. Yeah. Here's another one. I'm just, this is like, these are my, you know, bookshelves, right? And that really pisses me off. I'm like, why, why can't they get the women to turn around? Like, what, what is this about? And also, like, 
okay, the, the, uh, if you haven't, if you don't know about Lilac Girls, which was originally called the Rabbits of Ravensbrook, much of it is set in a concentration camp. And then much of it is set um, after that among the women who were experimented on as girls, Polish girls. Um, and I just don't feel like they were dressed like this in Ravensbrook, you know, like all the women on these that we see from the back are wearing these nicely tailored um, coats. Their hair is impeccably done, even though the Messerschmitts are dropping bombs in front of them. Um, and I, 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 I want to write a piece about this because I just don't get it. If you look at any historical novel, I mean, I've done this on, um, on Goodreads, that's come out in the last like 10 years that's involved a woman, it's a woman seen from the back. It's like we, you know, can't, I understand you don't want to be too specific about their faces, but why do we even need to see the women all nicely dressed in the midst of the carnage? You know, there could be some other cover altogether. So, sorry, that's my Have you heard, I, I, have you, have you ever heard an explanation from anybody as to why? No, I talked to, I just <laughs> talked to, um, a pretty well-known agent about it. She said, oh yeah, you're right. I don't know why that is. I don't know um, book. I don't know any book designers. I, that's who I really need to talk to. Um, uh, I, you know, the book that I'm mentioning that, that I worked on intensively with the author for eight months, that just sold that's coming out is also a historical novel set at the beginning of World War II among women. And I said to her, just uh, don't let them do a cover with the woman from the back. And of course, not only is it a woman in a beautiful coat um, seen from the back, but it's literally the, the bombers are outside of the window that she's got her, that she's facing. Um, so I'm like, what, how did she have time to get dressed like that when there's like an air raid going on, you know? I wonder if there was some sort of strange market research or something at some point that probably said, I it's very bizarre. I just started like noticing it since I've heard people and I, you know, you walk by it, but it's true. It's just shelves of women from the back. Very well dressed. Yeah. I feel like um, it's part because, you know, I've often I'll work on a book for a while with the author and then the book will get go into the it will have some other editing at the publishing house, although often not very much. And one thing I'm noticing is that these historical novels get sanitized. Um, in a lot of ways, like um, with Lilac Girls, you know, I think Valentine felt like there was a little too much of the concentration camp. There were too much scenes were too brutal. You know, um, with this other novel uh, of a woman seen from the back, which uh, was this beautiful book called Our Kind, not Our Kind. Um, there, there was originally a rape in the novel that was the center of the plot and that got taken out. So, um, I feel like it's part of that same phenomenon, but uh, you know, these books have been actually bestsellers, and so I don't know if if the if you know the publishers know what their audience wants, or if they've they've cultivated that taste in audiences, and therefore um, that's what they're feeding into. It's probably a little of both, mm -hmm. but yeah, really bothers me. Yeah. No, I makes me wonder if it's it's they're trying to make it a little bit more formulaic to your point it makes me think of the whole like women's fiction genre which I don't enjoy 
either. I don't really don't know what that is. Fiction. Yeah. What is it? Why do we have to have women's fiction? Why can't it just be fiction? There's not men's fiction. Since most fiction, since 90 something percent of fiction is read by women, pretty much all fiction is women's fiction. But um, yeah, I mean, people have read, like Jennifer Wiener's written famously about, you know, why, when we write it, why is it women's fiction? When Jonathan Franzen writes a family novel, why is that literature? Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I've just noticed, and I don't know that that's true in general, but I do notice it with the historical novels. I, I think it's great that these historical novels are coming out now, you know, told by women, because I think women's take on history has probably been underplayed over the years. But um, but then why does it have to be kind of smoothed down? You know, I'm always urging the writer to make things much more gritty. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I for instance, this morning in the book I was working on that's set in the South, the father has an oxygen. He's he's dying of a lung, um, you know, emphysema probably. And he has an oxygen machine. And it's just mentioned in passing in the scene. And I wrote like five questions about the oxygen machine. I want to know where the canicula goes into his nose. I want to hear it. I want it because by showing that, those gritty details, you the daughter who's telling the scene, you can see how upsetting it is for her and without her having to tell us. Mm -hmm. It's by what she notices. And um, also for some reason, um, we all as writers, I think, rely so heavily on the sense of uh, sight. And there are so many other senses that we can use. So I know that oxygen machines have this kind of weird hiss, um, like kind of hissing sort of rhythm to them. So what does that sound like? alarming when your father is hooked up to one you know and that should be the center of the scene so and then, and then probably when the book gets to the publisher they'll take that all out where where do you think the line is where do you think that there's a point at which an editor moves from from being an editor to a co-author you know you talk about how involved you become in a lot of these projects yeah no i mean i think um I don't feel like I've ever been a co-author. It's, I, if anything, I may be um, sort of an architect or um, I, I'm never building. I'm just helping to create the blueprint sort of thing. Um, I, when I, earlier in my career, I did do some rewriting, you know, and then some of those books went on to make literally millions of dollars. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I'm going to help the author bring out her voices, but I'm not going to like, re, I'm not rewrite her sentences um, or his. Um, so I, I don't do too much of that. I'll do it just as examples and say, you know, now you extrapolate from here if this is helpful. But um, I, I think um, it's definitely a collaboration, but I don't feel like the author in any way. You know, the famous editor I mentioned, Max Perkins, Hemingway and Fitzgerald's and Thomas Wolfe's editor that cultivated a uh, like philosophy of editorial self-effacement. <laughs> and I think that is um, an important part of the job. You have to be able to work behind the scenes. And I recently heard some great knock-knock uh, jokes about different forms of editing. And, and one of them is how many... How many editors does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is um, just one, but first you have to rewire the house. <laughs> and so, you know, nobody sees the wiring um, and that's not building the house and it's not putting on the light. It's just rewiring so the lights can go on. Yeah. What, there are a lot of different kinds of 
kinds of editing, which you've just alluded to. Can you kind of expand a little bit on, on the different types of editing that are, that are done and sort of what your, what yeah. your thing is? So um, I guess what I've mostly been talking about is called developmental editing. Um, I don't know why it's called that, but I guess the idea is that you're, you know, you are sort of collaborating in the um, kind of uh, structuring and the uh, other sort of elements of the book um, as it evolves um, or, or as it's written. If it, you know, like I looked up some of my early reports from the help. Um, I can read you one that can give you a sense of what developmental editing looks like um, because that novel, so there were 10 years of editorial reports on that novel in 2001. I said to the author, this is, she at the time thought she was writing a, a story. She wouldn't call it a novel. She, all she had was one, you know, it's gotten a lot of publicity, good and bad in the last years, but um, it's, it's told from three points of view. Two of them are, are black uh, maids from Jackson, Mississippi in the 60s. And those were actually the voices this author heard much more clearly than the white character, Skeeter, who um, takes their stories and writes them, kind of appropriates them. Um, because she was the author, Catherine Stockett was raised by a black woman and the book was really written out of gratitude and guilt about how this woman who was essentially her mother was treated within the household. Um, but she, all she had was one story from the point of view of somebody much like Dimitri, this woman, who became the character Abilene in the novel. And I wrote to her, this is some story you've got here. It has the makings of a sweeping novel, complex characters caught in the act of evolving, distinctive voices, a clear backdrop, a fish tank of a society in which conflicts will be inevitable. What you have here is a historical novel. Don't panic. It just means that you managed to bring back to life a distant time. Okay, I feel old now, but it is almost half a century. I consider this one of the greatest gifts you can give a reader. And some of the other, another comment from that report was, or I guess it was maybe one a little bit later when she had more of the book written. I was like, chapters are your friends. I understand why you would avoid them given that this would mean you've actually written a novel, but you're naturally organizing each section in chapter sized chunks. And so I'd go ahead and use them overtly. So that's developmental editing. And then once the chapters were written, we, you know, worked on structuring them and worked on opening them with something that really, you know, drew readers in and ending them on some kind of a, with something hanging in the balance and that kind of thing. But she was not writing with chapters. She was just telling the stories as she heard them in her head. So that's developmental editing. Line editing. Um, well, in the case of the help, a lot of the line editing I did, I, I, at first, you know, I was taking out like large portions of every, uh, every paragraph first, but then she got to the point where she was jettisoning way too much. So then I was putting stuff back in. So line editing is really working with every sentence. Um, and then um, the next stage, and I don't do this, if it needs to be done, I will give examples of it and tell the author they need to hire a copy editor um, or if I know that they already are accepted for publication, then the publisher will copy edit it. Um, that is a skill that um, is, is unique. And um, well, here's what the, the, how many copy editors it takes to screw in a light bulb. Um, how many copy editors does it take to screw in a light bulb? Um, answer, I can't tell whether you mean change a light bulb or 
have sex in a light bulb? Can we, can we reword it to remove the ambiguity? <laughs> so that's a copy editor. Um, and they also, you know, work on grammar and um, fact checking and continuity. And um, that is done at the publishing house. Unfortunately, that is often being outsourced now, um, sometimes to India, where a different kind of English is spoken. Mm -hmm. So um, one best-selling author I worked with from St. Martin's, um, when I was reading a prior novel of hers before I started on the one I worked on, um, the author, the, the character had gone to Coney Island, the clouds were accumulating, and soon there was going to be a downfall. And, um, you know, that's the kind of mistake that someone might make who doesn't speak American English. This book was set in the United States. Um, so that's a, and I'm sure they horrifically underpay the copy editors in India. Um, and then finally, um, books will ideally be proofread, although I find errors in every book and that's the occupational hazard. Particularly, I read a lot in, on my Kindle and um, those books are often, I mean, there's just rife with errors, it, I guess of inputting, I don't know. But anyway, so those are the stages. At a publishing house, there's the acquisitions editor who may also do some editing, but they're the ones who decide on, you know, whether to make an offer on a book. Um, and then the book will um, uh, have to get approved by many other people in the publishing house, including the publisher and the head of the sales force and um, the editorial committee, um, which is one reason why I love working directly with authors, because I don't have to have the heartbreak of having a book I love built at that stage. Although, of course, there's a heartbreak of many books I've worked on that have not found publishers. Um, although these days, as you know, there are numerous publication options. And I've been referring a lot of clients who have not been able to um, be accepted at a major publisher to go to um, some of the hybrid publishers like she writes, which can do a great job with books. I have a client who's published two books with them. Both of them have been bestsellers. Now, the client has done almost all of the outreach herself. Um, and the books, um, the most recent one is a book about her son's transgender journey and written from the point of view of the whole family. And she actually became, um, she and her husband basically became transgender advocates. They quit their other jobs and ended up doing that. And so like in that case, they're very hooked in with that community. They're in Texas. Wow. where there's a lot of advocacy to be done, um, but they travel all over the country. And um, so, you know, people are buying her books um, partly because they, they hear her, they know her. But if you're published in a major publisher and you're not one of their top titles, you're not going to get any real help with the publicity anyway. So, you know, a lot of authors I work with who are pretty well known will still hire their own publicist um, and wow. not rely on the publisher. So, um, yeah, but the nice thing about working with a hybrid, uh, so she writes, actually, will do some editing as well, and they do copy editing, and they'll help with the design. Um, you pay upfront a certain amount, but then you also get much more of the cover price. So I know that, I know others who have been accepted at major publishers and chosen to go that route, um, because they knew that they would um, make more money and would be able to get their book out there and have more creative control over the design and the marketing. So that's really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I know we were talking recently about um, how 
Amazon is affecting the actual um, writing of novels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's many ways to publish your book directly through Amazon. Um, and then if you publish through that method um, in Kindle Direct, you actually get um, royalties based on how much people read of the book, which um, creates a kind of um, impetus to write with constant suspense. Not that that's not a good idea in general. <laughs> um, I mean, Charles Dickens had to do it when he was serialized, but you can lose a lot of um, beauty that way, right? So um, the way that books are now being got, gotten to readers has changed so radically recently that it's, it's actually reaching down and changing the pacing and the structure and the whole sort of approach to writing a novel. For better or worse. For better or worse, yeah. I think, yeah. What can I say? I work within the process, so I'm not going to say for, for better. Obviously, I think editors are, are a necessary evil. But I'd like to, um, to circle back around a little bit. We kind of hovered around uh, this topic earlier, but um, as we mentioned, there's been a little bit of uh, some debate about the help. Um, American Dirt was a book that came out that sparked uh, a lot of public controversy fairly recently. People felt that the author was furthering negative stereotypes. So um, what advice do you give to the authors that you're working with regarding writing characters that might not be from the same background as the author? Um, and how do you think an author can create works that are inclusive and have characters from different backgrounds without stepping over that line into what might be considered exploitation or cultural appropriation? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad that we're thinking along these lines now, because when I look back on some of the books I have worked on, um, uh, there, there was a great deal of, I won't say appropriation necessarily, but a misunderstanding um, in the creation of characters, even from the best intentions. Um, but, um, and American Dirt was actually published by Amy Einhorn, who was the editor who published The Help as well. Um, and by the way, I think it's that controversy that made American Dirt a bestseller for so long that brought people to the book, mm -hmm. you know, um, but par maybe partly through anger or just, you know, pure curiosity, but it brought people to the book. You know, um, Colson Whitehead had a beautiful um, talk about this at the uh, American Writing Programs Conference, AWP, a couple of years ago, where he basically said, like, if you can do it well, do it. You know, I think that um, doing it well involves a tremendous amount of research and soul searching. Um, I, in some cases, recently, I've been much more aware of when a narrator, for instance, this um, you know, Central American boy who the writer I'm working with now is writing from. Um, he may not be needed to tell the story. He's a necessary character, but I don't have any confidence that I could help this author get into his perspective. He's from a village. He's, he's nine. Um, he's speaking Central American Spanish, which is a particular kind of Spanish. So even though you're not right, this author's not writing in Spanish, he has to understand the syntax, the vocabulary, the mindset, and the everyday experience of, of this boy. And she's actually written two books, published two books set in, in Central America um, already, but th that was a while ago. And I feel like now that readers are less tolerant of... Um, of imperfect understandings of those characters. 
So I think it's hard to do it well if you can, and it takes a ton of research. Um, and, uh, and that research can, really needs to include immersing yourself in the culture. Um, you know, like I, this is not quite the same thing, but Martha Kelly, who wrote Lilac Girls, um, when she came to me, she came to me through her agent at ICM, who said, you know, I think there's something here, but needs a lot of work. And um, she, when we started working together, she ended up spending another year researching, just researching, going to Europe, researching, um, reading, you know, I had said to her, I think you need to go back to, for the concentration camp scenes. I think you need to go back to some of the primary sources like Elie Wiesel and Primo Levi. And um, she said, who? So she had not um, done that research. She's, she's not Jewish. She's not a historian. Um, she just had the courage to write about this period in a way, like I think not being part of that world, she felt freer to write about it than she might've been. Um, uh, and to her credit, she went back and did enough research to recreate that world to some degree, um, at least in with verisimilitude, you know, we don't know whether it's real. We weren't there, but it's believable and it's respectful of um, the people who were experiencing it. So I, I, I think it can be done. I, I don't, you know, many people have said this, they're, they're without empathy for your characters, you might as well not write the novel. That empathy is going to have to be for characters who are not like you. Mm -hmm. um, you can't just write autofiction. So there are degrees of this, but um, at the same time, I've been really grateful that in the last few years, like in my new school workshops, I've really revamped the curriculum to more reflect, um, but, but the racial, ethnic, and other backgrounds of the members of the workshop. Like I noticed, for instance, that I had a number of students who were veterans. So I spent a lot of time reading short stories by um, recent veterans um, so that I could choose a few to use um, to reflect that experience. They are, so Phil Clay is a writer um, who was in the army and stationed in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they're almost written in a foreign language um, that the, the language of that the army and also of combat and of these soldiers um, who are, you know, whose bravado consists of, you know, very um, foul and um, uh, cynical language just to kind of preserve some sort of distance from what they're doing. So it's been, it's been great for me to have a reason to really dig into other, other voices and other cultures and yeah. Speaking of voice, um, how, how do you describe voice? And, you know, we often talk about an author's voice. This author has a voice. And then we have characters' voices or narrators' voices. And how, how are those two different? Well, ideally, they're different. <laughs> So, you know, I keep coming back to the novel I'm, I'm working on this week. Um, the voices of the Central American characters um, are not all that different. The, chap the narrative voice of their chapters is not different from the narrative voice of the, um, the Charleston character, characters born and raised in Charleston. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one thing I'm gonna work with the author on. Um, 
then you have, you really have three voices in that case. You have the narrative voice, mm-hmm. um, which is just telling the story from the inside of the character. Then you have um, their dialogue voice, which is going to be different from the narrative voice. Obviously, it's going to be more colloquial and messier. And then you have, in this case, the uh, a translate translated voice is what I call it. So um, the characters are speaking, sometimes the characters are speaking to each other in Spanish. Obviously, it's not being written in Spanish, but what we need is a translation, a kind of literal translation, for instance, of the syntax um, in Spanish, in this, in the particular kind of Spanish they're speaking. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping the author has some Spanish. <laughs> I know she speaks Spanish, but I'm hoping she knows Central American Spanish because it's different. And um, so a lot of what I do with authors is helping them find the voice. Um, I love uh, George Saunders in the book, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain that recently came out, which is an amazing book um, analyzing Russian short stories ostensibly, but also really talking about his views of writing. And he says the voice comes out in the revision. Um, and I love that because um, I do so much whittling away around what I see as the passages where the voice really sings. Um, that I, I hope that that helps the voice to come out. But, um, you know, so many novels are written in the voice with different, even with diverse narrators are written in a similar voice. And there are actually mechanical ways that I try to work on with authors to make the voices stand out. One of them is what I'm explaining to you that like if, if you're speaking Central American Spanish, well then know it well enough to know what some expressions are or I'm like, my mother is Hungarian, for instance. I, I, my, my native tongue is actually English with a Hungarian accent, um, <laughs> but it goes beyond the accent, the V's and W's <laughs> confusion. Like she will often, even now, um, mix up he and she, because in Hungarian, there's only one pronoun, uh, which is for, for both he and she. <laughs> so she'll say, you know, my daughter, Alexandra, you know, he's coming over later. <laughs> You know, she'll still say that. Um, there's some wonderful Hungarian expressions, um, you know, that I would translate if I were writing from a, in a Hungarian voice, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, Your mother goes on tank treads was one of my favorites from the communist era when there were a lot of tanks around Hungary. Um, uh, but even something small like uh, homesickness in Hungarian is, is home desire. So if I were having a character who's speaking in Hungarian, I would put in some of that, like some of that kind of translation. Um, And then, you know, uh, I mean, what, you know, you know, you have a very clear voice as a writer and hopefully you're not always thinking about it, but it comes to you. And, um, and then often the voice that comes to you when you're writing five in the morning or three in the morning or thinking about your novel or you're in a zone, that's a voice that's natural for you. And then you may have to work more consciously to create voices of other characters. And again, that gets down to a lot of research, a lot of listening. One assignment I give both in my workshops and often to authors I'm working with is to um, interview people and to record it and then listen back and listen to the kinds of things that people how they speak when they're speaking naturally, um, or just to walk around the streets with a uh, your phone on record or with a pen, if you do that kind of thing in a small notepad and write down phrases that you hear that stand out or just 
take notes sitting next to somebody in a cafe, to, sitting next to people uh, talking. I've, I've, you know, stolen some great lines that way. So, so voices are both heard, I think, inherently, but they're also, they also can be um, found and used. It's all about um, theft <laughs> in a well-meaning kind of way. All about theft. <laughs> it's larceny. It's <laughs> prose larceny. Writing is larceny. <laughs> um, we are coming sort of towards the end here, although I would love to be able to hang out and pick your brain all day. Um, so I've got a few questions that I'd like to do sort of like as a general kind of rapid fire situation, if that's. <laughs> yeah, I'm not great at rapid fire. That's why that's I write okay. 75 page editorial fire. reports, but I, I will try. Well, I'll try. Um, okay. Um, you teach writing workshops, teach writing as a new school. Um, what's your favorite thing about teaching writing and your oh least favorite? <laughs> Uh, my favorite thing is any time that I look, read, uh, open up a story or a piece of a novel by a student that, you know, um, and, and get lost in their world and realize that there's something there and that I can help them tell their story. I think that's my favorite thing. I also love, um, sorry, I have two, two favorite things. I love what happens in a workshop discussion where um, people are so supportive of one another. I can see the, um, I can see the author who's under discussion just kind of like, ideally, kind of, you know, getting some sense of, um, of worth, of, of inspiration, of being galvanized by being taken seriously, by being um, analyzed carefully. So that's what I love. What I don't love, um, I don't love, well, the thing I really don't love at the new school is I have to give grades, which seems absurd to me. Like, a, you know, I always say to my students at the beginning of the semester, okay, we're working in this system, um, but I, I really think the grade is what the New York Times book review is going to say about you down the road. So just, I, I only grade, I grade based on distance that a writer has come, not on talent, not on anything that they, you know, can't control. So, yeah. And I, and I, and I require a lot of revision so I can tell how people are using the feedback. So I, I, you know, that's one thing I really don't like. And then of course, often, you know, not often, because I think I try to really control this, but sometimes there are uh, comments that are made in a workshop that are so dispiriting that they can really throw a writer off. So that's why I try to keep it really focused on um, uh, what's working well and on the technical aspects and not on like, you know, I just don't get it or I don't like these characters or those things can really stymie a writer. That wasn't really lightning. Sorry. Well, that's no, but that's good. You it's know. a long lightning storm. <laughs> it's more like the thunder. <laughs> a thunder round. <laughs> what uh, do you think are the qualities that make a good writer? Uh, can I pass on that one? Because yeah. I, I mean, I, as an editor, I would say the quality is uh, somebody who can who can revise because it doesn't doesn't usually come out fully formed. So you know, can you take feedback? Can you revise? Can you um, get the distance you need on your own work to revise that aesthetic distance that you need? Uh, but, you know, I, my favorite writers, whoever I, I'm reading at the time, I, I, although I am struggling through Moby Dick, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting there. I, every sentence is so beautiful. I have to keep rereading it. And I'm just like, not somebody recently told me it was a page turner. And I was like, <laughs> I think I need to work on my approach to this book. Um, yeah, 
but uh, but I've uh, you know I, whatever book I'm working on, and I only work on one book at a time. I'm so immersed in it that I'm I'm thinking about it all the time. So I'm you know wake up often at three in the morning, and that's and I just actually took notes this morning on the book I'm working on. That's something I realized that I just needed to kind of sift down. But um, I love living in those worlds, in other people's worlds, you know, and 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 having the privilege to um, work with them on building them. So, yeah. Are there uh, specific qualities that make a good piece of writing, or is it? Uh, you know, I think any writing that um, fulfills its own intentions can be great. You know, like a lot of books I've worked on are not books that I would necessarily read, um, but I respect them for what they're doing. Uh, so I don't have, you know, a particular kind of writing that I necessarily love inherently or would privilege above others. As you know, we're reading a romance now in our workshop to try to understand that form. Um, and a good romance I have great respect for. It's also fun to read, obviously. Mm-hmm. Although we just found that one of the members of the workshop was uh, taking it on an airplane and, and tore off the cover. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, I could tear off the cover of all these books with women seen from the back. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what are your favorite books on the craft of writing? Oh, that I can answer. Um, you know, I do. I mentioned the George Saunders book at uh, Swim in the Pond in the Rain. It's a wonderful book for looking really carefully at how stories are put together. Even though I don't love some of those Russian short stories, um, uh, the way that Saunders um, looks at every element and why it's there and, um, you know, what its function is, is just so illuminating for a writer as well as a reader. I also love Francine Prose's um, Reading Like a Writer. Uh, and that, that, that goes, that's very nitty gritty. Um, it looks at uh, great fiction writing um, from the point of view of the sentence and the paragraph and voice, things like that. Um, of Anne Lamott's um, book, Bird by Bird, is probably the most encouraging book I've read. It's very, you know, that's where the term the shitty first draft comes from. Um, and um, I love her kind of approach to life as well as writing. Um, so, uh, and then finally, a book that I recommend a lot is by a mystery writer, Elizabeth George, and it's called Right Away, which is kind of a dumb title. But it's also very um, brass tacks, like, and as a mystery writer, she really knows about plot, but she's a, a writer who also starts by constructing her characters. And so it has like um, a 15 page character description. Um, and then you can see if you read the book that that character is involved and you can see how the plot evolved from that character description. So um, I also love that she includes parts of her journal where she keeps saying like, I don't know if I know how to do this. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know where to go in this book. Like there's a lot of self-doubt that is, is I think a daily um, part of writing and um, to see it in a writer who is published, you know, a working writer who has published so many best-selling mysteries is really encouraging. Though I, I'm sure it's not easy for her, but it's nice that she acknowledges it. Okay, last one, kind of a fun one. I normally ask authors what they think the theme song would be if their current book is 
made into a movie or a series. So do you have a good theme song for, um, for a project that you're currently working on? Wow. Um, I was just thinking, what would my theme song be as an editor? And, it might, and the first thing that comes oh, to my mind is Bob, is Bob Dylan's like a hard rain's going to fall. Oh, that's great. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you know, there's, there's going to be some hard work ahead, but rain is a kind of a nice metaphor. Things grow from it, whatever. So that, that just came to my mind. Yeah. That's a better answer. <laughs> Ride of the Valkyries. I don't know. Yeah. That's a great idea though. I, um, I actually, I'm working with a memoirist who's a musician, and uh, I've suggested to her that she um, compose some music to go with her memoir, and she's in the process of doing that. She's, uh, you know, was a professional cellist, um, so, and it, it, I think that'll also help her understand her book in a new way. Do you ever listen to music when you are editing, or are you complete silence? No, I am really trying to hear those voices. Yeah. In fact, when I work, I sometimes work at Paragraph, which is a writer's space, and I always have um, noise-canceling headphones or something, because, yeah, I need to get lost in that world. I don't know. I know that some writers like Steinbeck, you know, wrote to symphonies and stuff. I don't know how how they managed that. It worked for him, apparently, but, yeah. Everybody's got a process. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really, really interesting and really great. I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you for letting me come out from behind the curtain. That's so kind of you. And thanks for such informed questions and for being such a great listener, which is, I think, one of the major criteria of being a good writer. Fingers crossed. <laughs> thanks, Alexandra. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for joining us on Literary Prospects. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.